0: listening to the pharmacy podcast network. Hello and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
1: PTCe Pharmacy Connect podcast listeners, we're back for another episode of the PTCe Pharmacy Connect. So we are going to be diving into um, additional content. And uh, for our listeners on um, myelofibrosis and the importance of really understanding um, managed care considerations and the use of JAK inhibitors, Victoria, can you help um, kind of lay out the groundwork of what we're going to be talking about today?
2: Yeah, so, you know, whereas in our first podcast of the series, we really talked through what is myelofibrosis and how we diagnose it and risk stratify patients, today we'll be going through really our standard treatment options, as well as, you know, more nuance into the clinical data for the JAK inhibitors. And then I'm hoping we'll talk a little bit about too what's coming in the pipeline for these patients.
1: So we really appreciate the team putting together such great outlines for us to follow during these conversations. And for our listeners, you can find everything at PharmacyTimes.org. And I want to just mention that this is part of several episodes around myelofibrosis, and I'm glad that we've broken it up like we've done. And before we start, just in case you didn't listen to the first episode with Victoria, Dr. Nishar, can you kind of open up? today and giving us a refresher. What is myelofibrosis?
2: Yeah. So myelofibrosis is what is considered a myeloproliferative neoplasm. We are considered an aggressive myeloproliferative neoplasm that is driven primarily by activating mutations in things like JAK2, which is a tyrosine kinase, Nipple, which is the thrombopoietin receptor, and then KLR, which works to activate Nipple, And they're all part of the JAK-STAT pathway that's located intracellularly. And so mutations in the jak pathway in these certain areas lead to this unregulated stimulation of both our myeloid, lymphoid, and erythroid lineages in the bone marrow. And so this results really in a chronic inflammatory process. You get development of marrow fibrosis, which is hallmark to patients with myelofibrosis, and it leads to bone marrow failure. Now, myelofibrosis can develop on its own. And when this happens, this is called primary myelofibrosis. Myelofibrosis, though, can also occur secondary to other myeloproliferative neoplasms such as polycythemia vera or essential thrombocytosis.
1: Thank you, Victoria, for that. And before we get into the rest of today's uh, discussion, I also wanted to talk about uh, treatment paradigms. What's historically been used?
2: So we talked about, you know, last time how this is a, a disease of the an elderly population with a median age of about 60 to seven years old. However, we know that the incidence increases as we get above the age of 75. And unfortunately, right now, you know, there's really no curative treatment options for patients with myelofibrosis other than an allogeneic stem cell transplant. But we know that allogeneic stem cell transplant, especially myelofibrosis, is associated with at least a 50% rate of transplant-related death and severe morbidity and mortality. And so because of this, Allotransplant transplant is not commonly utilized in these patients so right now remains you know myelofibrosis remains incurable for most patients our treatment goals essentially are palliative they're really aimed at controlling disease symptoms these patients have bone marrow failure they get splenomegaly so they have a lot of constitutional symptoms fever night sweats weight loss and so we want to improve those symptoms and improve patient's quality of life you know, really, you know, treatment depends upon a patient's risk, what they're presenting with the severity of their symptoms. For patients, you know, who maybe just have issues with anemia and require transfusions, but let's say their platelets and their white blood cell counts are relatively okay. We can use things that go after the anemia, like erythropoietin stimulating agents, especially if their serum epoietin levels are low. Um, Other things we use just to go after the anemia, if that's the, issue are things like androgens like Danazol or immunomodulators like thalidomide, lenalidomide. But for, you know, most patients, a lot of patients with myofibrosis, they're going to have more symptoms, not just anemia. anemia. They're going to have very, very large spleens that cause pain, that cause early satiety and weight loss. Fatigue is an issue, a big issue in these patients, or they'll need, they'll also additionally need, you know, platelet transfusion. And so in patients that, you know, have more symptoms or higher symptom burden or more severe symptoms historically, uh, treatment options included things like chemotherapy, which again, this is an elderly population. And so it's not, it wasn't really tolerated very well. Other things we used were interferons or hydroxyurea. We just didn't have great options. I would say now for these patients, our JAK inhibitors um, really have kind of changed the treatment paradigm. and, And this is the situation where our JAK inhibitors really come into play for treating myelofibrosis.
1: You're giving us so many options, and I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking our pharmacists who are out there treating myelofibrosis and you know, working with the physicians to take the best course of treatment. I'm wondering, Victoria, how is a particular treatment specifically chosen? Is there criteria that's used to identify which is the optimal treatment? How does that work?
2: Yeah, so I would say it's a little bit dependent on every patient but in general, you know, the approach is to first risk stratify a patient and we we talked about there are multiple risk stratification prognostic systems we can use, most commonly using the IPSS at baseline and then the DIPSS plus throughout a patient's treatment as their disease evolves. And using these risk stratification categories, we classify patients as either low risk Intermediate risk one and two and then high risk. For those lower risk patients who maybe are minimally symptomatic or even asymptomatic, we can really just, you know, watch and wait. We don't have to treat those patients. You know, we never want to make someone feel worse than their disease is already making them feel. Now, for patients with, you know, intermediate risk one disease or higher who are not transplant candidates, and again, this is going to be majority of patients, we're going to look at their symptom burden. Do they have constitutional symptoms? Again, fever, night sweats, weight loss, splenomegaly. Um, we're also going to look at the patient themselves, their comorbidities, uh, their preferences, and kind of take that all into consideration. Um for these patients that need treatment, I keep mentioning the Jak inhibitors, but we can imagine that you know when you have a disease that is primarily driven by overactivation of the Jak stat pathway, having a drug that inhibits that pathway uh, can be quite effective. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a there's plethora of things that we use to determine um, first looking at risk category and then kind of looking at the totality of the symptom burden and then the patient specific factors as well.
1: Okay, so Victoria, it sounds like JAK inhibitors are really an important part of this treatment for patients um, with myelofibrosis. So, which JAK inhibitors are available and, and how do they work?
2: They are they are a super important part of treatment for patients with myelofibrosis, and it's I think really amazing that we have so many options uh, for patients at this time. The one thing I want to note before we really dive into the JAK inhibitors and their efficacy and where we use them, um, the one thing that I want to to set the stage of is that you know I think it's really important that we understand that while JAK inhibitors have really changed the treatment landscape of myelofibrosis. In general, as a class of agents, they have not been shown to reverse bone marrow fibrosis or even induce a complete or partial remission. We know that bone marrow fibrosis is hallmark of this disease, and preventing and being able to reverse it, I think, will do a lot of good for patients. Um, right now, the value of JAK inhibitors and myelofibrosis is limited to symptomatic relief and reduction in a patient's spleen size. With that being said, we do have three oral JAK inhibitors that are currently approved for patients with myelofibrosis, ruxolitinib, fedrotinib, and pacritinib. Ruxolitinib was the first uh, JAK inhibitor that was approved, and ruxolitinib binds and inactivates JAK1 and JAK2, shutting off that pathway. It was approved based off of two phase three studies, comfort one and comfort two. And in both studies, ruxolitinib decreased spleen volume by at least 35% in about 30% of patients and showed a reduction in patient symptom burden by half in 50% of patients. Um, Symptom burden using patient reported outcomes is a common uh, endpoint in trials of patients with myelofibrosis. And then spleen volume, we talked about last time that Another hallmark of this disease because the patient's bone marrow is failing, they can't produce enough platelets. Other areas of the body try to compensate. We know this to be the spleen. So we see extramedullary hematopoiesis, splenomegaly. So we use spleen size as a surrogate marker for disease response and survival. So we'll see throughout these studies that uh, reduction in spleen size uh, being a primary outcome. Now in the comfort one study of ruxolitinib, there wasn't a initial overall survival improvement, Um, but we now have a quite long follow-up with ruxolitinib, and unfortunately, the survival benefit has been lost. So so still unclear about the overall survival benefit of the JAK inhibitors. Interestingly though, um, ruxolitinib does show activity in patients uh, that do have that JAK mutation. Uh, So we know 50-ish percent of patients with myelofibrosis have a mutation in JAK2, um, but the other 50% of patients don't. Maybe they have a mutation in MIPL, CalR, or maybe they're what we consider triple negative. We don't know where their driver mutation lies. And in those patients, we still see a benefit with ruxolitinib, which is really encouraging. Um, One, I guess, limitation that I want to mention of of ruxolitinib is that eventually most patients are going to lose a response and we're going to see resistance. Um, The median duration of response in both COMFORT1 and COMFORT2 trials uh, was about three years. So we know most patients are going to need an extra line of therapy after ruxolitinib. Um, In addition, I think it's important to to mention some of the limitations of ruxolitinib. The biggest one being is that, you know, thrombopoietin and erythropoietin, their receptors are JAK-STAT dependent. And so by shutting that off with a JAK inhibitor like ruxolitinib, while it's really effective at trying to shut down the disease process, it also impairs the body's ability to make normal, healthy red blood cells and platelets. And so you see additional cytopenias with ruxolitinib on Top of what the disease is causing, um, we see a lot of anemia and a lot of thrombocytopenia, and so a lot of patients on ruxolitinib, you know, are unable to take the drug continuously. They frequently need dose disc, uh, dose holds, dose adjustments, and also, you know, because the side effect of the drug mimics the side effect of or a symptom of disease progression, um, it can be sometimes hard to delineate among the two. Now, I think it was really exciting. We say that most patients will progress on ruxolitinib after about three years. And so we needed additional therapies. And we were all excited when fedratinib, the second JEC inhibitor, was approved in 2019. Fidrotinib is a little bit more selective to JAK2 um, and JAK1. And it also has a, a little bit more off-target effects. It uh, hits off-target tyrosine kinases like foot 3 compared to Ruxolitinib. And so likely the dirtiness and the off-target effects of fidrotinib uh, contribute to the toxicities, which I'll mention in a second. But fidrotinib was approved and studied frontline in treatment-naive patients in the Jakarta trial. We saw a 40% of patients had a reduction in their spleen volume and about 35% of patients had a 50% reduction in their symptom burden. Unfortunately, this, so this was Jakarta study was the frontline study treatment naive patients. Unfortunately, ruxolitinib and fedratinib have never, you know, gone head to head against each other. So we don't know if one is better than the other. And by cross trial comparison, looking at comfort one and comfort two in Jakarta, it doesn't seem like fedratinib is, uh, has a difference in efficacy compared to ruxolitinib. But fadrotinib was also studied in patients that were ruxolitinib refractory. And this was the Jakarta II trial. Here, 30% of patients had a reduction in their spleen volume. So really, really exciting that fadrotinib does retain activity after patients fail ruxolitinib. Now, similarly, I'd say that tolerability with fadrotinib um, is also an issue like, like with ruxolitinib. You still see those hematologic toxicities, anemia and throbocytopenia. But with fadrotinib, you also pick up some severe GI toxicities like nausea and diarrhea. And then just important to know that Fidrotinib did not have, you know, an easy route uh, gaining FDA approval for myelofibrosis. It was put on a clinical hold by the FDA from 2013 to 2017 uh, due to a few cases of neurologic symptoms that were concerning for Wernicke's encephalopathy. We do see in vitro that fidrotinib can inhibit thiamine transporter in the gut, so potentially decreasing uh, vitamin B1 absorption in the gastrointestinal. Intestinal tract. However, when the FDA took all of the cases of all of the patients that uh, there was concern for Wernicke's encephalopathy, they found that all patients, and I think there were eight cases total, all patients had other risk factors for thiamine deficiency. These patients had poor nutritional status, they were cachectic. And so based on that, um, the FDA did allow fadrotinib to gain FDA approval both in the frontline and in the post-ruxalitinib setting. However, it does carry a black box warning for Wernicke's. And the recommendation is we check thiamine levels at baseline and throughout treatment. And then lastly, uh, the third JAK inhibitor that we have is pacritinib. And pacritinib was recently approved in February 2022, specifically for patients uh, with myelofibrosis and severe thrombocytopenia. So platelet counts less than 50,000. Pacritinib is unique in that it also inhibits JAK2 uh, with a similar potency to that of ruxolitinib and fedratinib, but it actually spares JAK1. And so because it has less off-target inhibition, we see that it is successful at preventing a further suppression of the platelets. It doesn't cause the thrombocytopenia that we see with roxalidomib and fadrotinib. And so because of this, it's the only JAK inhibitor that we have that can be given at full dose to those with severe thrombocytopenia. Again, pacritinib has been studied in several phase three trials, but never gone head to head with ruxolitinib and fedratinib. So still a little muddy uh, among which of these might be best in the front line. Pacritinib was studied uh, in treatment naive patients in the persist one study. And the persist two study of pacritinib really took patients with moderate to severe thrombocytopenia. So platelet count less than 100,000 and patients in persist two were either treatment naive or had prior JAK inhibitor. In both persist one and persist two, about 20% of patients had a reduction in their spleen volume. And when we delineated this out based on a patient's baseline platelet count, um, even patients who had severe thrombocytopenia, there was no difference in efficacy uh, based on your baseline platelet count, which was really encouraging. Side effect wise, it does seem to be tolerated a little bit better um, than fedratinib certainly and ruxolitinib. Um, common side effects were GI, nausea, diarrhea that happened early on in treatment, but they tended to be very low grade and manageable. So we now have those three um, JAK inhibitors approved for myelofibrosis, pacritinib, ruxolitinib, fedratinib all seem to show a similar efficacy. There's just differences in the populations that were studied and their side effect profile, but a, a big pool of options for our patients.
1: Okay, so you've mentioned those three with great detail, and thank you so much uh, for taking the time, Victoria, to really go through that detail. So I want to kind of back up and, and think of the differences between those three and, and how to choose... Um, You know the the therapy that that you move forward with so how does a pharmacist choose among these available jack uh targeting therapies how are you um how are you choosing which one to use and are they different is there a tolerability issue toxicity toxicity differentials can you kind of go into that too victoria
2: yeah so i'll i'll back up a little bit and just say that you know when we're choosing therapies as a team, um, we're really taking into consideration, obviously the clinical trial data, which I just went through, you know, who was studied, what were the clinical characteristics of the patients in the trials, and what are the side effects and the dose-limiting toxicities of treatment. And then we take that and we look at the patient that's sitting in front of us and we take it all into context and we say, you know, what is the patient's symptom burden? How aggressive do we need to be? What are the patient's comorbidities? Are there certain comorbidities or, or things that might limit what we can do? And of course, what are the patient's preferences? Patients should always be involved in their treatment decision-making process when we're you know trying let's say there is a patient that has you know intermediate risk you know one or two disease not a transplant candidate has constitutional symptoms and needs treatment um you know we're looking at all three JAK inhibitors we're thinking you know what are the pros and cons of each so we're ruxolitinib again limited by its thrombocytopenia and anemia many patients need dose hold dose reduction there are initial dose reductions if your platelet counts are under 200000 which is quite frequent in this disease population. Um, it also makes anemia worse. So if you have a patient with severe anemia already at baseline, you're concerned about giving ruxolitinib and making that even worse. However, you know ruxolitinib, unlike pacritinib and fedrotinib, other than the. The blood count issue, it's very well tolerated, and you know with our other Jak inhibitors, we see uh, different toxicities, more severe toxicities perhaps, and also um, we know that ruxolitinib works in the front line, and fedratinib and procritinib have been studied after ruxolitinib failure. Patients who fail ruxolitinib have very dismal survival once they fail the drug, but we know that fedratinib, procritinib can work in some patients. We don't know the opposite. Uh, ruxolitinib came out first. So it's never been studied in patients who had previously received fedratinib and pacritinib. So we don't know if ruxolitinib picks up activity after those two drugs. And when we're not curing patients of their disease, we're thinking about sequencing and getting as long of a response as possible. And what is the best way to sequence these drugs? Fedratinib, again, and upfront looks very similar to ruxolitinib, but you know can be used after it. Fedrotinib is also pretty toxic. About 20% of patients will discontinue due to adverse effects, GI, thrombocytopenia. It also has that black box warning for vitamin B1 deficiency. There is an ongoing uh, study called the Freedom Trial. It's looking at the safety and tolerability of fadrotinib in addition to aggressive GI and uh, thiamine mitigation strategies. So we'll wait for those results uh, to see how to make it more tolerable. But because you know uh, fedratinib, its toxicity is black box warning, and because of the efficacy data in the second line, I'd say right now clinically it's being reserved for later line therapy post ruxolitinib. And then thinking about pacritinib and where it kind of fits in, if we think ruxolitinib first, fedrotinib second, where does pacritinib go? Um, I think, you know, the data with pacritinib was encouraging because it's so selective for JAK2 and you can administer it you know, to patients with thrombocytopenia, which you can't do with with ruxolitinib and fedrotinib. Um Pacritinib, though, is not totally benign. It was also put on clinical hold in 2016. Um, there was a concern about excessive deaths related to hemorrhage and cardiovascular events. They did do a subsequent dose finding study. They had very, very strict eligibility criteria. So no patients with prior bleeding or who are on anticoagulation, you could not have any QTC prolongation, you had to have a certain uh, left ventricular ejection fraction cutoff, And they also were very tight on mitigation measures. So dose reductions and dose holds if there were any cardiac or uh, bleeding risks. Based on that dose finding study um, and those stringent criteria, it didn't seem like there was a, a safety signal for cardiovascular or bleeding events. So the FDA I did uh, grant procritinib approval. Um, But I think right now, uh, because again, we have second line data with procritinib, it's typically reserved for later line post-ruxolitinib unless you have a patient with severe thrombocytopenia that makes um, your ability to give ruxolitinib or fedratinib low. So for patients who come in with a baseline platelet count less than 50,000, who don't have a contraindication from a cardiac or bleeding standpoint, I'd say pacritinib is your go-to frontline therapy at this time. Uh, for patients with more moderate thrombocytopenia, so fifty to 100,000 platelets, um, where you're just concerned about the ability to give ruxolitinib, let's say, because you know that the counts are going to go down even farther. Um, I think pacritinib is very attractive. Otherwise, if, if blood counts and platelets look okay, I'd say pacritinib is also being reserved uh, for later line therapy after ruxolitinib failure. I do think though there's more to come with pacritinib. Uh, it's a very attractive treatment option in the future, I think, uh, for uh, combination-based approaches because of this just decreased incidence of thrombocytopenia.
1: These therapies are exciting to think that we're getting closer and closer in order to um, help uh, our patients live better and 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 be able to sustain and and live with a, with a with a disease like this, and it seems like we've made some progress in treatment and developing these novel targeted therapies, um, but uh, more work needs to be done, obviously, on this disease. Is there anything that we should look out for in the pipeline for for these patients?
2: Yeah, there's you you hit it, you nailed it. There's a lot of drugs uh, coming um, with similar or different mechanisms of action that we've seen. Um, to stay within that JAK inhibitor class, there are other additional JAK inhibitors uh, that are being investigated. The one that is probably uh, as fur furthest along is momolotinib, Um, and it's being uh, looked at in patients with myelofibrosis and anemia specifically. And momolotinib is is really unique I know I know you said we're nerding out, but I'm going to get a little bit me more nerdy if i can momolotinib also inhibits jak one jak 2 and something called activin a receptor type 1 activin a receptor type 1 is a transmembrane protein that's located on the hepatocytes in our liver and activin a receptor type 1 expresses hepcidin and so if we inhibit activin a receptor type 1 we block hepcidin hepcidin is what holds onto iron and does not allow us to utilize iron so if we block that, and we allow iron to be sequestered and released from hepcidin, well, that iron can then go on to support erythropoiesis and improve anemia. So at least I think it's pretty, pretty cool. Momolotinib has been studied against ruxolitinib, which is what we like to see. We like to see two drugs in the same class going head to head. It was found to be non-inferior for inducing spleen response, um, but it was not found to be non-inferior when it came to symptom burden. And unfortunately, and this was the Simplify 1 trial. There was a Simplify 2 trial in which momolotinib was treated, uh, used in patients who were post-ruxolitinib, but it was found to be not superior to best available therapy in inducing a spleen response, unfortunately. However, we're not going to count momolotinib out yet because in both simplified studies, we did see an improvement in anemia with 20% more patients who were treated with momolotinib compared to either ruxolitinib or best available therapy who were able to achieve and maintain transfusion independency. And that's likely because of momolotinib's activity against that active A receptor type one and hepcitin And so because uh, we saw such an impact on the anemia in patients with myelofibrosis, which can be a huge quality of life issue, momolotinib is now being investigated specifically for patients with myelofibrosis and anemia with additional studies ongoing. I will say, though, lastly, my my last point about the JAK inhibitors is that while, again, they improve symptoms and spagamentally for patients, you know, their impact on the underlying disease biology and and on patient survival has been minimal and, and questionable. And so I think, you know, in the future, we're going to see development and a lot of focus put on novel therapies and perhaps combination based approaches.
1: We like when pharmacists nerd out. It excites us to listen to these conversations. So, Doctor Nishar, thank you so much for uh, digging into uh, these Jack inhibitors. Let's um, let's get the, the the our minds thinking about some other things. And I always think of clinical trials, and you know, community pharmacy and pharmacists are playing a much bigger role in clinical trials and the coming of new therapies um, than ever before. Um, one of the things is the trust that the, that the community and our patients and people have of their pharmacists in being able to communicate uh, these therapies. So what are some of those other targets or mechanisms of action currently being evaluated in clinical trials?
2: Yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned, I think the focus is going to shift away uh, from looking at JAK inhibitors specifically. There are a lot of drugs in the pipeline. We would really be here all day, which I would enjoy, but I don't know if our listeners would want to be here all day. So I just want to highlight a couple. Um, the first one being PRM-151. It's a recombinant form of the molecule 2. And Patraxin 2 can prevent and even reverse fibrosis at the site of tissue damage. Now, Patraxin 2 was initially developed for pulmonary fibrosis, but subsequently has been repurposed now for myelofibrosis. So, the mechanism behind this is, is that in the bone marrow fibrils, in the bone marrow fibrosis of patients with myelofibrosis, there's a high concentration of fibrocytes. And fibrocytes come from monocytes. Now, typically, pentraxin-2 prevents the monocytes from differentiating into fibrocytes. Pentraxin 2 is typically made in our liver, and in patients with myelofibrosis, we see they have decreased or low concentrations of pentraxin 2 so there's nothing to prevent monocytes from differentiating into fibrocytes, hence uh, lots of fibrocyte production, and then those fibrous tissue formation in the bone marrow, which is hallmark of the disease. So PRM-151 is recombinant pentraxin-2. And clinical studies with it to date have really shown a modest improvement in symptoms in splenomegaly as well as marrow fibrosis. So I don't know if it's the slam dunk that we're looking for, but it's very, very well tolerated. And I just think the mechanism is super cool going at the hallmark of this disease. And so we'll look forward to the, the studies with pentraxin that are ongoing. Um, lastly, I just want to talk about uh, telomerase inhibitor 2, a metal stat. It has shown in clinical studies about a 10% uh, reduction in spleen volume and a 30% of patients have a reduction in symptom burden by about 50% in the post-JAC inhibitor setting. And this was in the phase 2 Embark study. So looking at a, a different mechanism of action in patients who are post-JAC inhibitor who typically have very, very dismal outcomes. Very interesting though this is why i'm highlighting a metal stat in the phase two embark study 40% 40% of patients actually had a one grade or higher improvement in the level of bone marrow fibrosis, indicating in the first signal that a metal stat may be able to change the natural course of the disease for patients, which is super, super exciting. Median survival for patients treated with a metal stat in the phase two Embark study was longer uh, than a historical cohort of patients in the same situation, so post inhibitor inhibitor's Setting. And so, because of this, there is now a phase three trial, Impact MF, ongoing, looking at post Jack inhibitor patients who are either randomized to a metal stat or best available therapy, which will exclude Jack inhibitors. And what is the most exciting about this study is that overall survival is the primary endpoint, and this is the first time in myelofibrosis the first time in this field that we are using overall survival as a primary endpoint, which we love to see overall survival as our endpoint uh, that we're looking at. So uh, a lot to come in the pipeline. those are just two, um, but I think they're they're very exciting and unique mechanisms. <laughs>
1: Well, Victoria, as a returning, uh, the leading returning um, guest on the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast, you know, my last question, we always like to ask, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our listeners, our pharmacists out there listening in right now?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a hard one for this one. I, I I talked a lot, but I would I guess I would say in my run on sentence of the most important takeaway is that you know while myelofibrosis is an incurable disease for most patients, the discovery and the use of the JAK inhibitors have revolutionized the treatment paradigm. We now have multiple JAK inhibitors. They all have slightly different mechanisms of action, but they all show a reduction in spleen size and improvement in patient symptom burden, which is great. Um, You know, they are, as all drugs, limited by their toxicities. Um, There are some newer JEC inhibitors in the pipeline. We talked a little bit about momolotinib that may improve upon some of the side effect profile. Uh, Some of them, um, you know, are attractive for combination-based approaches. So I can see us going there in the future. However, the limitations of the JAK inhibitors really are that they haven't been shown to prolong how long our patients are living, and they have you know, very little impact on reversing that underlying organ dysfunction caused by this disease. And so we look forward to those novel targeted therapies and novel agents that are coming um, that can really go after the fibrosis and the underlying disease damage for patients.
1: Dr. Victoria Nishar, thank you so much um, for this information today on myelofibrosis. This has been extremely interesting uh, listening and learning from you, and we uh, we appreciate you.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me again.
1: We are excited to continue the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcasts. If you are a listener of these podcasts and you appreciate it, please reach out to us on social media. Um, You can find us on at Pharmacy Podcast or any of the Pharmacy Times um, handles. They are on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want to look up all of the episodes, you can go to PharmacyTimes.org. Pharmacists, you are our most favorite providers. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Uh, Keep Um, pushing keep learning keep sharing with each other keep developing content for each other Uh, reach out to the pharmacy podcast if there's anything I can ever do from you I am your greatest fan and I am a privilege and honor to uh, be part of PTCE pharmacy connect and I thank you
0: thanks for tuning in to the PTCE pharmacy connect podcast your feedback is important to us please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about Go to PharmacyTimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.